This morning we again look at 2 Corinthians and we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 11, which was read this morning, where Paul says, Would to God you could bear with me, which means to put up with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear or put up with me. The word folly means foolishness. And Paul's folly, if you picked up in the reading of this chapter, was his boasting. Paul is going to play the fool, and he's asking the church to bear with his foolishness. Now, this is irony. He really doesn't want them to bear with being a fool, but he's compelled to speak this way because they are putting up with false apostles, which we read about in this chapter, the messengers of Satan. So this is an application of Proverbs 26, 4, and 5, where the writer there says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him also. But then the next verse, the writer says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit, in his own wisdom. So if we apply that verse, Paul here is going to answer the fools, the true fools, the false apostles, the imposters, by engaging in their game of folly, which they are boasting in their own ministry and criticizing Paul's. So Paul finds it necessary. He despises it. It is distasteful. He doesn't want to do it. But he does it in order to rescue those final rebels at Corinth by exposing the folly and the foolishness of these false apostles by speaking a little folly himself. So Paul says, will you put up with me a little in my folly? And then he's going to give us several reasons in this chapter why he's speaking this way. This morning, we'll look at three. Our title is The Reason for Paul's Boasting. And under that heading, we find three reasons he engages in this folly for the sake of the church. One, his jealousy over them. Two, his fear concerning them. And three, his knowledge among them. Verse two, because I am jealous. Why is Paul bearing or giving us this folly or this boasting that he speaks about. Number one, because, or for, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, because I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So this is the first reason Paul gives us that he's going to speak this way, that he's going to engage in boasting or play the fool for the sake of the church. He's jealous. The word jealous means, in a good way, he has a zeal. He's boiling. He has a warmth of feeling to pursue something. And he's pursuing the good of the church. So Paul's jealousy is a godlike jealousy, which means it has God for its aim and it has the good of God's people as its outcome. Now this is the very jealousy of God we find in the Old Testament. You will remember, deposited right in the Ten Commandments, God says the Israelites were not to bow down and serve and worship other gods. Why? For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. God is jealous over His glory, and He's jealous that He have no rivals to His supremacy. That jealousy works itself out in two ways right there in the Decalogue. One, the jealousy of God visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of the children that what? Hate God. What's God's jealousy over in His judgment? Those that hate His glory. So God's jealousy is first over His own glory. The second way His jealousy expresses itself in Exodus 20 is that He's showing mercy to thousands of them that what? Love God. So God's jealousy in judgment is over those that hate His supremacy, and God's jealousy in mercy is toward those that love His glory. And of course, the Decalogue gives us and tells us that we don't love God, which brings us to Christ, who is the one that fulfilled that very law 
for us. So how is Paul saying this is working itself out? His jealousy, which is God-like, which means it's over God, His glory, like God's jealousy is. It's being worked out in a jealousy over the good of God's people as it relates to God's glory in this way. I have espoused you to one husband, one Savior, one Messiah, one Redeemer who is God. So Paul's jealousy that's God-like for God's glory is a jealousy over God's glory in Christ for the good of God's church, which is presenting them as a chaste virgin to Christ. Well, let's talk about this verse for a minute. Paul is borrowing the language of the Old Testament of God's betrothal to Israel. You might remember in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 3. God told Jeremiah, Cry unto Israel and say unto them, I remember the love or the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals. The word espousal here in our text and in Jeremiah 2 means to betroth. So God says, I remember the love of the betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness, a land that was not sown. So the word picture there is God went to get his bride and he made an engagement with Israel at the time he brought them out of Egypt. Jeremiah 31 speaks of God as a husband to Israel. And this language is all over the Old Testament. Well, Paul borrows this language and now he applies it to the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, I have espoused you, I have betrothed you to one husband. So Paul's language presupposes three stages of this betrothal. One, the betrothal itself, the promise to marry. When you get engaged, right? You pop the question, the husband proposes to the would-be bride, and she says yes. Paul said, I have betrothed you to one husband. Well, when did he do that? He did that at their conversion. He would say in 1 Corinthians 4.15, using a little different language, he would say, Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, be followers of me. Paul says, I was instrumental in your conversion. God used me in the conversion of the church at Corinth and the planting and the establishing of that church. On that basis... Paul had a unique relationship with this church and he's already laying the foundation in the first letter not to be swept away by these false teachers because he had a unique founding relationship like a father to a child he had begotten. He was instrumental in their conversion. So Paul says here, I am the one that God used for the promise of marriage through the gospel. All right, the second stage. So that, what's the aim of this betrothal? I, Paul, may present you as a chaste virgin, a pure maid to Christ. Right? In this divine presentation, there's two stages here. The future stage is the actual wedding itself, right? That's when we experience the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's when our longing eyes shall see Jesus Christ, our husband, using the language of a betrothal, face to face. But that presupposes the stage we're in now, isn't it? We're in the engagement, period. Now, there's a sense we've already been presented to Christ. We are with Christ. We walk with Christ. We have faith in Christ. But the final stage has not yet happened. So Paul's jealousy over the church at Corinth, having been used of God to betroth them, the promise of marriage, to in the future tense present them as a pure virgin to Christ on the day he returns, now his jealousy is working itself out in a zeal to do what? To keep them in the engagement so that they would not break their engagement with Christ. And that's what the potential of happening that Paul sees with these remaining people at Corinth that have not yet 
repented. Now let's ask the question, how does that relate to heritage today? We're a church or other churches on the planet today. And how did that relate to Corinth? How was Paul seeing himself in this role? Now again, he uses the language also of Deuteronomy 30, uh, 22, which he sees himself in a paternal position with the church at Corinth. Deuteronomy 22, whenever a daughter was betrothed, it was the father's responsibility to ensure her purity until the wedding day. And when the wedding happened, if the husband hated her and he accused her of being unfaithful during the betrothal period, the father had to bring evidence to the elders and show where it wasn't true. Here, Paul is borrowing that language, it was also Jewish tradition, to say, I am fighting for the purity of the church in her faithfulness to her bride, which is Jesus Christ. How does Paul do that? Well, there are a few places we could turn to that refer to the divine presentation, that is, the wedding day when the church, as we just sang, will be presented in purity to her husband, Jesus Christ. But let's consider one in particular, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. This is what Paul says, if you'd like to turn there. Colossians 1, 27. Paul would say, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery among the Gentiles is that the the nations are included as being part of the bride of Christ. It was a mystery hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in Christ now. Paul said God is making this known, this mystery, Christ among the Gentiles, Christ among the nations. How did Paul see himself in this mystery? Verse 28, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Notice the divine presentation. Paul sees his role in Colossians 1, and here in chapter 11 is his preaching ministry as the means by which the church is going to be eventually presented, what? Perfect in Christ Jesus. That's what the word that means, in order that, right? Why is Paul preaching? In order that we may present every man, the church, perfect. So how does that relate to us? How will Paul present heritage? Perfect, whatever that means in Christ Jesus. Through Paul's word that he left the church. Now notice these same three Greek words in Colossians 3.16. Wisdom, warning, teaching. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, church, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Those are the same three Greek words that Paul uses to say the aim of his preaching in wisdom, warning, teaching, so that we may present every man complete in Christ Jesus is now carried out through the church. How? By letting the word about Christ that Paul taught and wrote in the New Testament be shared, preached, prayed, discipled in the church. So in that way, Paul is still involved with us today through his word as that word is preached, prayed, discipled with, shared, studied what's happening. We are in all wisdom teaching and warning one another. For what end? That we may appear complete or perfect, a chaste virgin in Christ Jesus in the future. So that may be more informal than Paul because he was an apostle, but nevertheless, those same three Greek words are used by Paul for us today. So we should be letting that word dwell in us richly so that This is being carried out in the church today for the end that God is using it to keep us, to preserve us. For what end? A complete church. Perfect. In that day. Now what does he mean by perfect? Well, the word means lacking nothing necessary to completion. 
lacking nothing. See, the reality, beloved, is, is that God is cleansing the cleansed. He's making perfect the already perfect. He's washing the washed. And He's sanctifying the already sanctified. Now you see this in Colossians 2.9. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. Perfect tense. Already completed, never to be repeated. You are, as the bride of Christ, totally, completely washed, Cleansed, perfected, you lack nothing necessary for completion because in Christ, you're perfect in that sense. But you're being perfected in the rest of the gospel. We rest in it because our being perfected is not securing our righteousness. We have it. Our being perfected as the bride is that we're slipping into the beautiful wedding garments of righteousness that we're already wearing. That's the glorious news of the gospel. Now how does Paul see himself as being in this role for the church at Corinth, and even today, as we use his word, Paul's word is now still that role as we use his word, his teaching, his preaching, in all wisdom, teaching and warning, that we may be presented perfect. See, the way we are presented perfect at the divine presentation is by being attached to whom? The one who is perfect. And what is that attachment? It's by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by faith. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 1, and we're connecting the dots here, we'll go back to our text in a moment. Colossians 1, he would say, And you who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now is he reconciled the body of his flesh through death to present you now this is God presenting you holy, unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. See, whenever God says he's going to present the church whenever Paul writes in Ephesians 5 that Jesus would present it to himself a glorious church he's doing that through Paul's ministry and the ministry today through the word. He's keeping his bride through faith, by the ministry of the Word. So Paul says in the next verse, in Colossians 1, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of what? The gospel of your husband. What's Paul talking about? Beloved, the only way you reached the wedding is you don't break the engagement. How could it be said you'll be there for the wedding day if you break the engagement called faith and you depart from the living Christ and sever from Him totally and finally? The glorious news is that the bride is secure and our assurance of reconciliation and the divine presentation is what? We continue trusting Jesus as He keeps us continuing to trust Him. So Paul sees his role in the perseverance and preservation of the saints as being the ministry that helps to keep the bride focused on the husband through the engagement period. So what is it threat in Colossians and in our text? The threat is a broken engagement. Paul says in Colossians 2.8 this way, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Love of wisdom. How is Paul countering that? With the bride. Preaching. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. The true wisdom and knowledge of Christ versus a false wisdom that carries them away captive. This is what Paul is after in our text. This is how he sees his role. He has espoused them to one husband. His aim is to present them as a chaste virgin, meaning trusting Jesus. Chaste there doesn't mean without sin. It means you're still trusting Jesus at the divine presentation. So he fights with a a jealousy over the church, and that's why he's writing this letter. To rescue and to sustain and to preserve 
God preserving His bride through the wisdom of the Word that Paul has left us. And so, beloved, it's, it's the same role today through Paul's Word. We are to be zealous over one another with a godlike jealousy because God has espoused us through the Word to one husband and He's going to receive us as a chaste bride one day in the future. In the meantime, during the engagement, we walk by faith, we're sustained by faith, and God is keeping us by His power through faith in the Word of Christ. And so our first application, are you maintaining your engagement to Christ? Are you being swept away by a false wisdom, by a pseudo-wisdom that's carrying you away captive rather than, as Paul says, rather than after Christ? In Him you're complete. In Him you have everything you need. In Him you have the husband who is the perfect provider with no flaws. And Paul is jealous, which is why he says, Bear with me a little while in playing the fool because I'm jealous over you that you don't break your engagement and depart from Christ. Because our deep assurance of that wedding day is what? We keep trusting Jesus. We keep trusting Him all the way. Secondly, that's Paul's jealousy. The second reason is Paul's fear. But I fear, in contrast and transition from verse 2, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Because, verse 4, if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, you might well bear with him. And that last phrase, you can tell Paul is saying, you're putting up with these false apostles which are preaching something different. So bear with me in my folly because I'm afraid of something, Paul says. Now what is he afraid of? Well, first, that your minds will be corrupted. Corrupted means to perish, to be destroyed, or to be led away from that knowledge and holiness that the bride ought to be abiding in. We've seen this word before, mind. He's concerned about their minds being led away captive. We've seen it twice. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the noema. This is the same word. Blinded the minds of them that believe not. If a blind man can't see with his eyes something, a blind mind cannot perceive with his thoughts something. What can he not perceive? The light of of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. He wants to prevent that from shining. So these false apostles, who are messengers of Satan, according to Paul, are seeking to blind the minds of the bride of Christ with another kind of spirit and gospel to lead them away from knowledge and the holiness they should be abiding in. For this, Paul is deeply concerned, and so his jealousy is fighting over this church. The second time we've saw, seen this word is in 2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down imaginations, vain imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every noema thought to the obedience of Christ. Because if these false teachers blind your minds mentally to the supremacy of one husband, what happens? Obedience goes. It stops. Because you've been captured by a false wisdom, a false gospel, another Jesus. So Paul's concern is recapturing their minds 
and taking them captive for the obedience of Christ. Because what's happened in verse 4? They are preaching another husband in the context. Another Jesus, right? Isn't that what happens? Well, if I was only married to that man, look how he provides. Look at what he gives. Look how he loves. And what happens? Engagement is broken. That's what these false apostles were doing. Now, what Paul does here in verse 4 is something interesting. He uses two Greek words for the word another. The first word another is alos, which means another of the same kind. The second two Greek words are heteros, another of a different kind. Now, this is what I think Paul is saying. False teachers can't get into the church without preaching a Jesus of the same kind. Which kind? The historical Christ. Looking back at the past, yes, the one who died, was buried, and resurrected. They preached a Jesus like Paul in some sense, or the Corinthians would have never given them the time of day. If they preached that Jesus wasn't God, or Jesus didn't die, or anything associated with that. So they preach another Jesus that was different from Paul, but not different from the historical Christ. But they left the historical Christ and took on another view as it relates to another spirit and another gospel. In what way were they preaching Jesus, yet another spirit, and I take that to be the Holy Spirit, not our spirit, and another gospel? This is Paul's fear, and he wants to awaken them to what's going on. Now, to understand or answer those two questions, we have to go to the first part of Paul's fear. Lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled, deceived Eve by his craftiness or subtlety, so too your minds. So Paul is going to draw something from the temptation of the serpent which although Paul doesn't call the devil, he does say in the same chapter, Satan transforms himself to an angel of light, which he did in the garden. We have to consider something about what happened in the garden to see what Paul is saying about this other Jesus, this other spirit, and this other gospel. Okay, So consider Genesis chapter 3. What did Satan do in the form of a servant to deceive Eve through his subtlety. He called into question God's provision in three ways, at least three ways that you might have found more. First of all, he called into question the sufficiency of God's word just by repeating what God said with a question mark. Hath God said, you shall not eat of the garden, or not eat of all the trees of the garden? Yes, there's a question mark, right? So he begins to cast doubt regarding the sufficiency of God's Word, what he said. He didn't say, why? He didn't say anything more about the tree. He just says, don't eat it. In the day you eat it, you shall surely die. That was sufficient. That was enough. That's all they needed. But Satan first cast doubt into question that they needed something more. Something more than what God said. I need to know more than what God said. And so, ultimately what he was saying too is that you can eat, you can go against God's word, and there'll be no consequences. And that lie is being perpetrated today. Maybe you bought into that lie. You can continue to reject God's word. You can continue to ignore God. And somehow, in the end, it'll just work itself out. No, you will die forever. And beloved, I will too. If I ignore what God says about His Son, and people are believing that lie every day. God's Word is sufficient, it's true, and what God says and promises in a positive way will happen, and what God promises in a negative way will happen. 
So the Word of God is for everyone, unbeliever and believer alike, because it's going to work itself out in truth for every human being. So believe God's Word. It's sufficient. And He's given us everything for life and godliness. Secondly, He calls into question God's provision. You know, why not this tree? Yeah, I know we've got all the other trees to eat, but we want to eat from this tree. Did God provide enough for their bodies? Was there not not enough food to eat? Was there not a, a sufficiency of provision, even physically? That was part of it. Why can't we eat that tree? I mean... We, we need that tree. We need something more than however many trees there were. We don't know, but there were plenty, and all the trees were given for food except one tree. And so the devil calls into question the goodness of God's provision. He doesn't give you enough. He's not a provider. He's not a good husband, is he? He doesn't know how to provide, because if he were, he would give you every tree of the garden, every tree. And so, you know, Satan says, for God doth know, which implies this is why he's not telling you. This is why he's holding back the one tree. He knows that in the day you eat thereof, you will be as God, knowing good and evil. Let's bring this to the last thing he calls into question, is the provision of God's wisdom. We see that from what it says about Eve in relation to the fruit. When she saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. I don't think the first two were really what got her. Do you know why? Genesis 2.9 says, Every tree of the garden God made, what? Good for food, pleasant to the eyes. It was just as the same as the rest of the trees in terms of good for food and pleasant to the eyes. She could have turned around and saw all the trees God made were good for food and pleasant to the eyes. But this one tree, she was captured by the third thing in the text. It was desire to make one wise. What did she think her own wisdom would do? Well, first of all, she thought this wisdom would mean I'll decide for myself what tree I want to eat from because I'll know what a good tree is and I'll know what an evil tree is because I'll be like God. Isn't that what we struggle with every day? I'm going to live life on my own terms. And make no mistake, what that means is you think you're wise enough. You think you have enough knowledge as a little bitty created ant. I'm just relating us to God. Who knows nothing compared to God. Yet, I think that I can chart my own course and I can eat whatever tree I want, whatever tree I decide. In other words, I'll decide what's evil and sinful and I'll decide what's good for my own life. And millions of people do it every day. And we were on the same pathway or perhaps you're still on that pathway. Perhaps you wake up every day with no other thought but how am I going to live my life? What am I going to do today? Without any regard for what God has said about what is good for you and about what is evil for you. She thought her own wisdom would bring her to the place of deity. And where did it get her? Fallenness. And what did she think this wisdom would do? She thought it would bring her pleasure. Because what does the word desire mean? But the expectation that this wisdom would deliver on her desire to be satisfied. That's what the word desire means. Pleasure, delight, that's what she was after. And God is withholding from me a full and perfect satisfaction. And if I could eat this, I will be wise and I will have enough. She wanted more. And the serpent called in question God's wisdom for her own wisdom. And she exchanged the glory of God's wisdom for her own. And she became a fool, and so have you, and so have I, outside of Christ. That's what Paul's concern is. And you remember the first letter to the Corinthians is all about the wisdom of the world. It's changing the wisdom from the infinite, knowledgeable, holy God for a wisdom 
of a finite, depraved, sinful human being. And the insanity of it is that I really think it's going to work. Isn't that insane? And yet perhaps today some of you walk out of here being the same old person, following the same wisdom. That's our spiritual insanity. Thanks be to God that He has awakened us and He still awakens His bride to the glory of a wisdom that is far superior than the wisdom of this world. Hath not God made foolish, beloved, the wisdom of this world? Has He not made it foolish to you? How? By the power of Christ and His supremacy. All right, that's, that's what's happening in the garden. This is what Paul is concerned with, that Satan, through these false apostles, would deceive the church like he deceived Eve through his craftiness and so corrupt their minds and draw them away from one husband and break the engagement for another man. On what basis? He's a better provider. He will satisfy me. He will give me what this first husband is not giving me. So the thought goes. Now, let's apply verse 4 and see what it is that they're preaching that's another spirit and another gospel that Paul relates to the fall of Adam and Eve. Of course, it's God's provision in the Son. It's God's provision in one husband that He can meet all your needs and He will satisfy every need in a particular way. So look at this the first way. The Spirit. Now we have to see what Paul is saying in terms of his ministry. Because what they are criticizing is the integrity of Paul's ministry. In other words, he doesn't have the power of the Spirit. He doesn't have revelations. Uh, He doesn't have the power of oratorical skills that they have. That's why Paul will glory in his weakness. Right? They didn't understand that. So what they were saying about the historical Jesus, Jesus died and suffered so you won't have to suffer. Paul, why are you suffering? You're not authentic. You're not a real apostle. Paul connected his gospel with his suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Where was that? The cross. He, Paul, is bearing in his body, in his ministry, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our bodies. What's Paul doing? The Jesus he preached that died on a cross is the Jesus that says, you must bear a cross today. Does Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. That's what their Jesus was denying. Same historical Jesus, but Jesus' historical crucifixion has been replaced with a resurrected Jesus. And if Jesus is reigning, guess what? No suffering. Paul, you're not authentic because of your suffering. Now, what does Paul do in this letter? He unpacks his suffering like no other letter to counter This heteros spirit. Paul did have the power of the spirit. And he will talk about some revelations later. Why? To counter their idea uh, that Paul didn't have any revelations, so he's not an authentic apostle. Well, in fact, he did. This is the only place in the Bible you can read about it. Why? Because they were preaching another Jesus, same historical Jesus, but not preaching a Jesus where you bear a cross today. And how has that affected our thinking? Think about it. I mean, we're willing to serve as long as there's not much sacrifice to it, much trouble or hardship, right? I mean, we're willing to give, but nothing sacrificial, right? Are there ways in which we've taken on another Jesus and another spirit which says, we're glad Jesus suffered, but don't call on me to suffer? So we avoid any kind of trouble associated with the gospel. If there's no trouble and there's not a hardship doing it, if it's not a trouble to get to church, if it's not a big deal to serve, I'm ready. But don't ask me to do anything that may be troublesome. We've taken on another gospel. Paul said, I have suffered the loss of all things. 
and count them dumb. He wasn't just willing to suffer loss, he did. Romans 12, 2 says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. A sacrifice is a victim. A victim is someone who's hurt, damaged, or killed for someone or something else. Now, the killing is probably not something we will likely experience with the gospel, but the hurt and the damage is. So by presenting ourselves a living sacrifice gives us the imagery of sacrificial living, which means their losses to bear, their suffering to be counted, and it comes our way. Will we avoid it like the plague? Or do we embrace it not because we want to suffer, but because following Jesus means take up your cross because you have one and follow me. The cross of self-denial, the cross of suffering should it come, the cross of losses, the cross of everything it means being a Christian in a hostile society like the one we live in. So in some ways, perhaps we've received another Jesus in our American culture. He says, I love the gospel, Jesus suffered. Don't ask me to suffer. Don't ask me to go across town. Don't ask me to do anything really difficult because I'm busy living the American dream. Oh, how we need our thinking changed and not being changed by false teachers who are after the mind. They're after the mind. And then secondly, another gospel. What was this other gospel? Gospel just means good news. So again, they, they had a, a similar Jesus historically. Yes, Jesus died, buried, raised again. But they had a different mission, a different gospel, a different kind of good news. And what was it? And beloved, it's the, it's the good news of the gospel that's being pushed today. It was the gospel that Jesus suffered. He's reigning in heaven now to bring you health and to bring you wealth. And Paul already addressed that in the first letter. He already saw this coming. 1 Corinthians 4, 15, when he says to the Corinthians, Now you're full. You know what that means? Satisfied. Sated. They had a view of the kingdom that it had come now in its fullness. In other words, there's no engagement period. We're in the wedding fully. Now you're full. Now you're rich. He's telling the Corinthian church. Now you have abundance. Why? Because you think the reign of Christ is He's ruling and reigning on your behalf so that you will live in fullness. As long as, you know, sin doesn't get in the way, as they might say. This is a false gospel. And you reign as kings without us. What's Paul saying? In this view of the kingdom now, you're reigning. That's interesting. We're not reigning with you. We would to God that we would reign with you. But instead... We are the offscouring of the earth, a spectacle to the world. In other words, we're suffering and you're not. They had bought into a gospel that says, now is the fullness of the kingdom, now is the wealth, now you're reigning without suffering, and you're reigning with good health and good prosperity. That is another gospel. That is a gospel that they were duped by. And that's a gospel that we easily are allured by, beguiled, seduced by. And what happens, beloved, that becomes a replacement husband. Because that husband is going to give me what I really want. And so it's an easy, easy thing for us to gravitate to a replacement savior, a replacement husband is anything we attach ourselves to horizontally that we think is going to provide. And what it does is it lures us away from the one husband that Paul has espoused us to through the inspired word. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, anything that motivates us and captures us 
that we think Christ came to bring that's outside of Christ becomes a substitute for God's provision, God's wisdom, God's word. And so we must be careful that in such a gospel and many other gospels being preached that we are not beguiled into thinking, yes, I've received historical Christ, but He's reigning today to make everything good, pleasant, comfortable, convenient, surpluses, fullness, we're reigning. When Paul says, no, that reign is yet to come. Now we're in the engagement. Now here's the question. How will Paul help the Corinthian church from this other Jesus or another husband? And this is the last point, verse 5. Kind of a unique way we wouldn't expect in addition to what we've said. Verse 5, For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. Now, I think the evidence shows that Paul's talking about the original apostles and not these that are false. Paul is not any whit behind or lacking as it relates to James, John, and the original apostles. Now, it was believed that these false apostles were saying they were sent by Jerusalem. And they were attacking Paul's gospel and Paul's credentials and the integrity of his ministry. Well, Paul says, I'm not behind the original. In fact, in Galatians, they gave him the right hand of fellowship, which means the apostolic gospel of the original is Paul's gospel. So Paul's not behind them. Verse 6, But though I be rude in speech, I, I don't have the skill of these guys that are polished and dynamic and have all this oratorical flair about them. Paul acknowledges that. Yet, not in knowledge. So why is Paul asking them to bear a little and playing the fool? Because of his knowledge among them. What is he saying? Not in knowledge, but we have been throughly made manifest among you in every way or in all things. And we could divide that into two ways. His knowledge by preaching. He was with them for 18 months, a year and a half, every day, preaching. They had sufficient time to understand Paul's knowledge, the knowledge of the gospel and everything he preached at Corinth. But there's another way that Paul was made manifest thoroughly. They knew his knowledge in word, but they knew his knowledge in action or deeds. This perhaps could have been one of Paul's greatest pains, that after 18 months of seeing Paul and witnessing Paul and being with Paul, that they could turn from him to men they didn't even know. Isn't that something? Paul made this point often. You know what manner of men we were among you. I was with you. Why are you being taken by false gospels when I was with you every day in the trenches, in the battle? He would make that point to Thessalonica. He would say, know them that labor among you. Know them, because that's going to help you. Not be drawn away from someone who preaches better. Sure, more dynamic. But do you know his deeds... And you know the gospel that he preaches. And then Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in contrast to false teachers, he says, Timothy, but thou hast fully known. You know what that word means? To know by being a close follower, being with someone every day. Timothy, these are what the false teachers are about, but you have been with me. And you have seen my doctrine, my manner of living, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, my patience, my persecutions and afflictions which I bore at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. And yea, all that will live God in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Who's that? False teachers. Timothy, you know me. You know what I'm about. You didn't hear me on a podcast. You didn't see me on a live stream. And you didn't watch me from a big screen. You were with me for years. You see what Paul's saying? How tragic it is to turn away 
by teachers that are better. Now we're not talking about real teachers, you understand. The false ones. Because they didn't know Paul during all that time that he was with them. And beloved, it can work the same today. No matter what teachers we're listening to, to know something about them, those that labor among you, no matter how inferior they are to the best of teachers, know them, know their character, know their words, and Paul seems to say it'll help from being drawn away by someone that sounds better, but someone you don't know, you've never even met. Isn't that tragic? So let's summarize. Paul is asking the church to put up with his folly because he wants to answer the fool according to his folly. He's using irony here. And he uses that throughout and he uses sarcasm. He's, he's making a point to get them to see their own folly. Why is he doing this? Because he's jealous over them with a godlike jealousy. He is concerned, he is fearful, lest their minds be corrupted. So he's acting out of that zeal for God's glory and their good to awaken their minds out of being captured by false apostles. And then lastly he says, because in knowledge, you know what I said. You know the Jesus I preach, the Spirit I'm about the Holy Spirit, and the gospel that I preach. And you know because you've seen me. I've been with you. And that should have been sufficient. The last one for them to say, look, Paul is real. Paul has loved us. Whatever these people are saying, let's go to Paul and let's get this worked out. And may we be the same way toward one another. That we know one another. We labor with one another. And may God help us as well. To remain faithful by His grace through faith, which God is going to keep His bride in Christ. There is no chance that the bride will fall out of their engagement. The insurance that you're part of the bride is what? You maintain faith in Christ. He keeps you, you keep yourself. And those two things work themselves out together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for making us your bride and help us to take serious the warnings of Scripture and the reality of the serpent who beguiles, who is crafty. Help us not to be drawn away by a false wisdom that promises something it cannot deliver, promises something more, when yet what folly to think there's more than Paul's gospel and there's more than our husband Jesus Christ, who in him dwells all the fullness of God. And we are absolutely, totally, completely perfected in him. And now as you perfect us and mature us in the gospel, bless us that we look with longing eyes to the day of the consummation of the wedding itself. And we see our husband Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.